to uh, this latest episode of the podcast. This is like a special Christmas edition, so I hope um, you find this like a really enjoyable hour or so of kind of stimulating voices and stories, reflections and music. Um, this is a live recording from, a, from an event that I do uh, myself, my wife and a few others uh, do every month called Borderlands, which is we gather in a pub in Belfast somewhere and we gather um, voices to talk about faith and conflict and reconciliation um, and where we're at right now. And so this episode was um, recorded just last week, the night before the UK election at a time of kind of great polarization and division. And in that space, we gathered voices uh, who were, um, yeah, coming from the fringes. Uh, Paul Hutchison, who used to be a leader in Carmilla. Um, uh, Jen Clark, my wife, uh, who's a leader down in Onkuin and Ross Trevor. Um, and Alan McBride, whose wife was killed in the Shankill Road bomb in 1993, who's now become a real statesman and an activist and a, a voice for peace and reconciliation. As well as that, we've got two songs in this episode from the really wonderful band Nalani, who are an Irish folk music band who bring a kind of a modern twist to ancient songs. And these are two beautiful Christmas songs, New Year's, New Year's Day songs that uh, they've really owned and, and turned into something beautiful. So we hope that you enjoy this episode. Um, we are really grateful for all those who continue to support us in different ways in the, in the wider project of Guardians of the Flame. This particular episode is supported by the Community Relations Council, and we're really grateful for their support in this new season of podcasts. So I we'll hope you enjoy this episode and uh, get something from it. I've known our next contributor for uh, some time, as has... Dave Hines, um, Paul Hutchinson, uh, I should have rehearsed a proper introduction. He's been in um, community leadership and leadership, particularly in the Karimila community for some years. Um, very much someone who puts himself at the intersection of sometimes of conflict and in that space creating art and beauty in the midst of it. And he's re recently um, written a book uh, about kind of the Karimila community. Uh, community and he's going to come now and uh it's here and it's available to buy um somewhere um it uh said that my this house was a house of prayer and now it's uh you know i said <laughs> no no it wasn't no <laughs> um so i'd like to welcome paul hutchison to come do a reading from this book which you can buy later so let's give him a big warm, warm welcome So a story, a liturgy, and a poem. That's what you're going to get in the next nine minutes. So if you're thinking, how long will this go on for? Only nine minutes. <laughs> Perhaps nine and a half, but keep to your watches. Nine, nine and a half minutes. A story, a liturgy, and a poem. So I'd like to talk about the past, about the now and the not yet and how we might live in the midst of the past, the present, and the future. An in-between place, linked to a past, trembling in the now, and wondering about the not yet. And tonight we're in a time of Advent, which is a time of yearning, hoping something's coming, aching at the foot of the manger. And tonight we're on the eve of an election, 
a time of uncertainty, anticipation and anxiety. And I'd like to begin in 1972 in a story uh, from my book Between the Bells where I had the privilege of being centre director for five years. And for those of you who don't know about 1972, it was the worst year in terms of fatalities and the troubles, that terrible euphemism that we call our history. 470 dead. We had Bloody Sunday, 13 civilians shot dead by the British Army. 21st of July, 22 bombs planted in Belfast, Bloody Friday, in the space of 75 minutes, nine killed, 130 injured. 1,300 bombs planted, 1,853 firearms found. And if my mum was here, she would say, tell the funny stories, Paul. Tell the funny stories. And as part of a Christian community looking and trying to be and do reconciliation, Corimela created liturgies. I'll begin with that. And sometimes liturgies were recited, like this liturgy that I come back to again and again. In the midst of hunger and war, we celebrate the promise of plenty and peace. In the midst of oppression and tyranny, we celebrate the promise of service and freedom. In the midst of doubt and despair, we celebrate the promise of faith and hope. In the midst of fear and betrayal, we celebrate the promise of joy and loyalty. In the midst of hatred and death, we celebrate the promise of love and life. In the midst of sin and decay, we celebrate the promise of salvation and renewal. In the midst of the dying Lord, we celebrate the promise of the living Christ. Liturgies recited together with closed eyes and open, not to ward off evil or protect ourselves from feeling, but to hold the feelings true. To find containers that allow and nurture the grief and anger and hurt to come out. Not to say, it's fine, Jesus is coming, but to say, it's hell and Jesus is here. To craft a prayer in the gory mess where the body of Christ is literally being exploded into pieces and the map of our lives is littered with piss and shit and blood. Where simple answers are not enough to carry the pain and agony, where ancient texts are wrestled over and thrown away and picked up and prayed out in hoarse voices. Where the term reconciliation is distorted, is heard as surrender, as betrayal of the dead, as a call to shake hands with your enemy, your abuser, your oppressor. Silence is often the beginning and end of things. We say the word reconciliation cautiously in the shadow of 3,600 deaths. Traditions and texts are studied and compared in an effort to find new ways of loving in a time of war. What is it to say in 1972? Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. What is it to say in 2019? Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. It is to comprehend the war and its casualties. It is to weep with the creator over a mutilated creation. It is to recognize the war and its origins. It is to cry out and work for justice. It is 
to be passionate for truth, gentle with our truth claims, open to correction. It is to be graced with new eyes. It is to see our part in the conflict. It is to see that of God in every person. It is to have days where Christ has died is the only prayer to accompany the ache. It is to have days where Christ has risen seems a ridiculously empty prayer. And it is to have days where Christ rises up out of the broken bones reality of our lives. It is to be sustained in the not yet of Christ will come again. It is to dare to dare to live as if each moment was a gift from the Creator, a gift infused with vinegar, sugar, salt and dust, and to give thanks in the midst. And now to the liturgy. We are rescued, we are being rescued, we are not yet rescued. This is called a not yet liturgy. On the eve of Adam and Steve and Aileen and Shona contemplating how to cast their votes, I pledge allegiance to love and all her furious finger holds and unexpected endings. Uncompromising and supple strong, a love that gives, forgives, holds, sustains, challenges and renews. On the night before the count, I recant and recount and say that us and them is also a we. We are connected, held on this small island full of possibility, pain, promise and partial knowing. On the brink of success and defeat, I plant my feet in the place the Persian poet Rumi describes as out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. In that place of both and, in that place of broken and healing, in that place of ready and stalling, in that place of hope and despair, in that place of vulnerable strength, in the place where the mighty binary is rumbled and humbled by the crying Christ child who tumbles empires and offers life in all its expansive contradictions and wonder. In times when a room is often divided between those who do and don't say the four-letter word that rhymes with duck, I say, fuck shall not be the word that neatly divides the room into bad and good, Christian and other. And in the midst of leave and remain, Corbyn and Johnston, for and against DUP and Sinn Féin, truth and quarter truth, lies and loathing, I celebrate the cosmic Christ who lives in all. Amen, amen, amen. And finally, story, liturgy, poem. To 1952, May 18th, 1952, with Paul Robeson, African-American, athlete, lawyer, singer, actor, political activist, who has had his passport removed so he cannot leave the US because he thought that Russia was a good place for not having slaves. And so a concert is organised on the US-Canadian border. And this is a poem about that day by Naomi Shihab Nye, a 
Palestinian American. This is crossing that line. Paul Robeson stood on the northern border of the USA and sang into Canada where a vast audience sat on folding chairs waiting to hear him. He sang into Canada. His voice left the USA when his body was not allowed to cross that line. Remind us again, brave friend, what countries may we sing into? What lines should we all be crossing? What songs travel toward us from far away to deepen our days? Thank you. So uh, we're just going to have a break in a minute, just after our next, uh, our final contributor before the break. Um, very special guest who's lived over here since 19, well, she first came here in September 98 and then moved here in um, June 2002. I should know because she's my wife. Jen Clark, give her a round of applause. I suppose we're all here because we're waiting for something. We wait for buses and in queues, for the clock to finish at work or for the washing to dry. But if you're me, you're usually waiting for Johnny. <laughs> yes, you all know. My stepfather, Ron, is a 72-year-old retired newspaper man. Every single day, he sits by the window with his crossword, and he waits for Jim. Jim is the postman, and he and Ron are the exact same age. They both love a bit of banter about old blues records, rather in their bad backs. But recently, over the past few weeks of this Yuletide season, Jim has been hurried and harassed and tired, carrying parcel after parcel, cursing Amazon. So yesterday, in that gale that blew all the trees bare, Ron, with his usual crossword, sat and waited by the window for sign of the red Royal Mail truck. And when Jim arrived, Laying his parcels down, Ron met him with a steaming cup of tea and a handshake. And for a moment, in the midst of the rush and the gale, I watched these two old men find a bit of quiet and warmth in the company of each other. And I swear it glowed like a light in the window. Ron is my stepfather. <coughs> because my biological dad left us when I was seven. As a deeply damaged addict and a Vietnam vet, he couldn't do the family thing. So my mom turned to God in that time, and she waited. She waited for 14 years, telling me God's promise to bring her a husband who would be like Boaz. He would be an honest man with integrity 
and care and gentleness. She said when he came, he would love her and he would love her kids too. I told her she was crazy. And I think she maybe was a little bit. But she waited with her promise for 14 years until he did come. And now he waits for the postman with his crossword and helps her son with his French homework. And there, there was a little family born. Unlike my mom, I'm not a very patient person. People who know me know that I like quick answers. I like results. I don't like traffic. I don't like queues or waiting. I have never read a set of instructions in its entirety. <laughs> and at my worst, I am prone to rushing and impatience. I'm probably the reason mindfulness books have a market <laughs> and why they still need writing. <laughs> I'm easily swept up in the busy, and it's not always good. I was chatting with a good friend yesterday as I lamented about the capitalist march I feel Christmas has become, putting so many people under financial and relational stress. I complained about the irony of needless gift-giving driving us away instead of towards each other and its cost to our planet. I said I fear the inevitable consequences of what we're creating and longing for the quiet and reflective peace of Advent, to which she quietly replied, yeah. Elections, governments, consumerism, anxiety, depression, business, rush. And so, I guess our act of resistance is to sit here together in this little pub while the world outside marches and storms on. Here we wait together as best as we know how, turning our hearts and minds back to what Advent means the great anticipation of a world waiting to be born. A world that, like a baby in the womb and the kingdom of heaven, is here now, but also is not here yet. A world in which we have the audacity to believe and a promise of redemption and renewed humanity brought to us in a tiny babe in the world's first blended family believing that this can and will be better than what it is. So what am I waiting for? What are you waiting for? What is the hope that we're holding inside of us, no matter how small, that is waiting like a light in the window? Do we read this together? All right. Okay. We did. I did this little prayer here. I like to do these sometimes when I'm working through things. Um, so yeah, we can read this together. I wrote it while I was making spaghetti. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> All right. So this is to the God, to God who waits with us, to the God who waits with us. You came to us as a baby, naked, vulnerable, and seeking refuge. We confess we've lost our way. 
We've been distracted by the principalities at work to convince us that we need more than what we have, that we are not enough and separating ourselves from one another. Help us to point our hearts back to where they belong and remember the gift you've given us. Help us to carry the warm light of kindness that is caring for each other and in carrying, grow the hope within us for the birth of a new world. Amen.
Okay, well, we've had a, a lovely evening so far. Thanks to you for being here and all the contributors. Um, we're going to talk for a little bit here, and then afterwards we've got uh, Nalani are going to play a few songs for us to finish this night. But I want to ask us to give a round of applause to our guest here tonight, uh, Alan McBride. Let's give him a round of applause. Um, Alan... Uh, in 1993, uh, his wife Sharon was killed in the Shankill Road bomb. Uh, and in the years to follow, uh, Alan has walked a journey where he's become a real peacemaker in this country. And someone who's kind of, I don't want to say uniquely placed, but one of a sadly small number of people who have the capacity to talk in the language of both sides. Um, and so at a time of polarization, at the time the day before an election, uh, I think it's really significant to be able to listen to what Alan want, has to say to us. Um, what he has to say about uh, faith in a time of conflict, uh, what he has to say about what reconciliation can look like. Um, so thanks, Alan, for being here. You're welcome. Um, I want to maybe just start at the very, at, by going back in time uh, to the kind of the years after your wife was killed. Um, and if some of you would have seen the documentary I made called Guardians of the Flame, I like to do a wee plug for that in most of the... Uh, no, but uh, if you did see it, uh, we interview Alan during that, and Alan tells a lot of his own story. Um, and when I've heard you talk, um, Alan used to do quite a lot of stuff with a group called the Truth and Reconciliation Platform, where different uh, victims from both sides of the uh, conflict share their stories. And... When I've heard you share there, and also when I've heard you on the documentary, you tell in the years after the Shankar bomb, losing your wife, you're kind of this earnest quest to, to kind of corner Jerry Adams and to be able to confront him. Uh, and then that led you ultimately to having a, a beer in a pub with a loyalist and Republican ex-paramilitaries. Um, can you kind of just trace that time period for us? Yeah, well... Sharon was killed on the 23rd of October, 1993. Uh, it was a Saturday, uh, a really cold day, but quite beautiful. Uh, I was going out for a, a ride on my bike that day. Uh, I came home uh, at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and a friend called around the house to say that he'd heard there was a bomb in the shankle. And I think one of the, the great sadnesses about living and growing up in Northern Ireland when I lived and grew up in Northern Ireland was that the things that started that shocked us in the 70s when there was loads of people being murdered and killed, by the time it got into the 80s and the 90s, those things had stopped shocking us. They just became part of uh, our normality. We get used to the troubles. And I think there's a great sadness uh, in that uh, because we could become complacent. And certainly complacency played a part in my wife's murder because where Sharon's dad had the fish shop, 
on the Shankill Road. It was directly below the UDA headquarters. And uh, if we at any time had a sat down as a family and, and thought, you know, where's probably the worst time to have a business, it would be below the UDA headquarters on the Shankill Road because it was always going to be a target for the IRA. We got away with it for 10 or 15 years, but uh, luck finally ran out on the 23rd of October when the IRA came in uh, to the shop to kill uh, UDA men that were supposed <laughs> to be meeting upstairs. And of course, that meeting didn't take place, and the people that were murdered were, were all just innocent civilians. Jerry Adams carried a coffin of the bomber, some of you would remember that uh, from the TV. And I suppose for me, he became the public face of the Shankle bomb. Uh, so I had a very direct campaign aimed against him. Uh, I used to take placards and stand outside his offices and I used to phone him up and I actually remember going to America, Boston, New York, Washington. The first time I was in America actually I was chasing Jerry Adams around the States uh, because he was fundraising for the IRA and for Sinn Féin. And uh, for me, he was the person that carried the coffin of the guy that murdered my wife. I started writing to him then. Uh, I wrote him letter after letter. Uh, I sent him photographs of Sharon on her birthday. Um, Christmas, uh, holiday photographs. I just wanted him to know who she was as a person. Because I think sometimes when we think of conflict and we think of the people that were killed in conflict, uh, it's easy to think of the number. And so we all remember 3,700 odd deaths in Northern Ireland. But if it happened to be somebody belonging to you, your mother, your, your sister, your brother, your father, um, your wife, you just can't forget about them in, in quite the same way. So I wanted him to know who she was. The last time I wrote to him, uh, well, I've actually written to him more recently, but back then I thought I would get smart and write to him in Irish. Now, I don't speak a word of Irish, I have to say to him. From a loyalist housing estate, uh, unionist, uh, I went into the, the library, I can remember it, uh, writing this letter out in English and then getting the dictionary and starting to translate it. And it became apparent quite quickly that there's not a corresponding Irish word for every English word. <laughs> which is a, real, is a real bugger when you're writing a letter, to be honest with you. So I wrote this letter off to him on sort of half Irish, half English. And whatever happened, it did the trick because it's the only letter, uh, bar a more recent one, that he's actually responded to. And when he wrote back to me, he said, you know, Alan, uh, we in Sinn Féin understand your hurt and your pain, but you have to understand that there's nobody working harder for peace and reconciliation than Sinn Féin. And this letter arrived about probably... Uh, two weeks after the IRA had murdered a guy in Lurgan by the name of Fred Anthony. Fred Anthony was a cleaner in a police station. In the morning he was getting into his car to drive to work. He was picking up his little daughter Emma to, to take her to school. She was about three years old, nursery school. And the bomb went off, killed him, and his daughter was very badly brain damaged. And I could see the photograph of a little girl looking up at me from the front page of the Belfast Telegraph when this letter arrived. And she was the same age as my daughter, which is why I think it just was so poignant. And I can remember thinking, how in the name of God can you be claiming to work for peace and reconciliation? And the organisation you're linked to is carrying out these kind of atrocities. Not against members of the security forces, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that that's okay, but even if that's what you're saying you're doing, this guy just happened to be a cleaner. He was a, he was a soft target. Um, so the words of Jerry Adams, for me, rang very hollow. I used to go out to my wife's grave, and I used to go out there three, four times a week, and I used to write letters uh, to her. Um, I think that's crazy, but it was my way of kind of keeping connected to her. And initially, I just love letters. I mean, I was 22 when I got married. I looked about 12, to be honest. Um, 29, when she was killed, uh, we had a daughter, Zoe. Um, she's 28 uh, at the moment, so next year she'll be the same age as Sharon was when she died, and that'd be a big anniversary for me. Um, 
but uh, you know, back then um, I was just, um, I just really, I was just, I was just grieving, I guess, you know, um, and I just wanted Jerry Adams to know, um, you know, what what had happened. Um, and so, uh, in in the documentary, we talk about uh, this this trip you took to Edinburgh, uh, which was a kind of a, a later time in your journey. You had kind of begun to kind of realize maybe there was something to peacemaking. Um, can you just tell us about that flight and what happened and the conversation and what it meant to you? Well, I suppose that started really when I was up to Carmoney uh, and I was writing these letters because after I sort of had, had, had written about how much I, I loved and missed Sharon, I started to think about the conflict and I started to think about, you know, what it was like growing up here and started to think about my own upbringing. And I grew up in a loyalist housing estate. My father was in the UDA when I was growing up. He wasn't a bad person. He uh, joined the UDA um, because he thought he had to defend his community against Republicans. We lived in the Westland, which is in North Belfast, uh, surrounded by Republican nationalist areas, and there was a lot of fighting going on at the time, and he did what he, he had to do, you know, so, I, so, he, so he joined the UDA. And when I was thinking about that, and thinking back to my Uncle Cecil, actually, my Uncle Cecil's a legend. I mean, I used to think I should get T-shirts printed of my Uncle Cecil. Um, everybody has an Uncle Cecil, at least everybody I know has an Uncle Cecil. So he was a guy that would have gone to church on a Sunday, and he was in the Presbyterian Church, and he was—he taught Sunday school, and you know he did loads of things, uh, you know, in the Boys Brigade and all sorts of stuff. And yet he probably was one of the most bigoted people I ever knew in my life. I can remember sitting in the house when he was coming into the house, and he used to bring us up sweets a couple of times a week, and we used to enjoy him coming. But he would have sat down and had a cup of tea with my mother, and in those days I would have been burned out Devon and Jerry Fit and people like that on TV, and he would have said to my mother something along the lines of. Would you look at John Elfinian, bitch? And he swore this one was a Finian, as he called her, just because of the way she looked. She had a Finian look about her. And when we were kids growing up, we started to believe all this nonsense that you could actually tell people apart in this country just because of the way they looked. You know, they had a Finian look about him, their eyes were too close together, whatever it was. Um, all Catholics of big families have got ginger hair. You know, I mean, these were the things that I, I would have heard quite regularly. And they were ridiculous, you know, and they were so ridiculous, actually, because as a Protestant family, we were a big family. There were six kids in our house, you know, three boys, three girls, and three of my siblings had ginger hair. <laughs> but never did I stop to think, we, 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 need, we need to challenge this, this nonsense. We need to challenge this nonsense, you know. So when I started to think like that, I started to think about the people that murdered my wife. And they came from Ardoin, which was not that far away from where I grew up, um, literally a 10-minute walk. But I would never have been in their area and they would never have come into ours. You know, our parents never drank in the same bars. We never uh, attended the same churches or went to the same schools. We never shopped in the same supermarkets. You know, we lived literally 10 miles apart, but it may as well have been 10,000 miles apart because the two communities never really interacted. And I imagine that when that happens to you, you can start to think all sorts of things about other people. Um, so much so that when those guys were 19, they thought that they could walk onto Shankill Road and plant a bomb and really have very little regard for, for the people who were there. I have no doubt that they were after the UDA. I'm not suggesting for a moment my wife was the target. She was not. But the very fact that that bomb had a very short timer meant that the people who were on the Shankill Road at that time were expendable. They weren't really thought about. They were collateral damage. Um, so when I started to think like that, I started to think that perhaps these two young people uh, they carried the, the bomb into the shop that day, um, were themselves victims of where they grew up uh, in the Ardoin. Perhaps they too had an Uncle Cecil, 
and they weren't that different from me. I was fortunate when I got to about 15 or 16, I got involved with the church, Boys Brigade, um, but they didn't and they, they stayed connected to what they were doing, ratting or whatever it was, and then they, they joined an organisation and they, and they committed murder. I mean, it's impossible to know, but I do know this, um, you know, the number of times that I've been told, you know, by people who were involved in terrorism, you just lock them up, throw away the key, they're psychopaths. I have yet to meet anybody, and I've done a lot of work with ex-prisoners who I would describe as a psychopath. Um, I've met a lot of people that uh, in another life we could have been friends with. Um, so if they're not psychopaths, what, what is it that, that explains that behaviour? Because there's something very abnormal uh, at 19 years old of walking into a shop and leaving a bomb on the counter and killing people you've never met before. It's definitely not normal behaviour. So if it's not psychopathic, what is it? And I believe that it's, 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 it's the way it was here. It was people growing up, it's the things that they came across, it's the experiences they had. Uh, they were born to hate, almost, in terms of how they were socialised, how they were introduced to the difference. Um, this is a very long-winded introduction to this uh, pub yeah, in Edinburgh. Yeah, I'm yeah, getting yeah. to it, I'm coming to it now, actually. <laughs> so it's okay thinking like this when you're kind of by the, the relative comfort of, uh, of Cremony Sanity, where I was at the time, uh, doing this writing. Uh, but sometime after this, I got invited to go to Edinburgh to speak to uh, um, some psychiatrists. I ended up sitting beside this loyalist guy on the way out. Uh, and we started with a conversation, and when we touched down in Edinburgh, he said to me, look, after the conference, Alan, do you want to go out and maybe get a drink? And uh, we can, uh, you know, just um, enjoy some more conversation. And I knew that he was a loyalist. He was a, a former life sentence uh, UVF prisoner who had murdered. And uh, I knew that if I was going to go out with him, it would be like, I was saying it's okay because you're one of us, you know, I'm, we're Protestants, we're, we're loyalists, we can... And I knew there was an IRA guy on the plane that day who I'd never met before. And he came over and introduced himself, and to cut a long story short, the three of us went out to Edinburgh that night. And when I uh, was telling my story, uh, the IRA guy, his name was Joe, he touched me in the hand, he looked into my face, and he said to me, you know, Alan, what happened that day on the Shagga Road was wrong. And I asked an Irish Republican, I'm sorry. And because he hadn't gone to add in the way that Jerry Adams had all those years previous, but you have to understand. He actually brought me into his story and I was able to listen to his story for the first time. And he told me how when he was growing up in the New Lodge, which is not that far away from where I grew up, uh, how the British Army came into the house and wrecked the house numerous times and people were interned and he had family members shot dead. And when he joined the IRA, he joined to, to seek revenge at the age of 15. And the loyalist guy had an equally compelling story. None of that explains or justifies what they did at all. But it helps me to understand um, you know, that sometimes they're about for the grace of God go I. Um, so yeah, so that, that, that's the journey I've been on. And I suppose that moment in Edinburgh was a real watershed, Johnny. You know, it kind of, I, I just knew when I, because up, up to that point, I was, as I say, doing all my campaigning work against Jerry Adams and all the rest of it. And I knew that when I came back from Edinburgh, I, I, I had to dedicate myself to trying to foster dialogue and discussions between people who wouldn't normally sit in the same room together. But that's pretty much the work I've been involved in for the last probably 15 years. Yeah. Thanks, Alan. And you work, one of the things you do is work for WAVE, uh, and it, which is a victims group. Um, you know, one of the things that strikes me, both when we made the documentary, and it was like Eugene Reevy, whose three brothers were killed, um, by the Glenann gang, you know, loyalist paramilitaries and British government collusion, all this kind of stuff. Uh, his three brothers were watching Celebrity Squares and shot dead. Uh, yourself, uh, your experience of your, of your wife working in a fish shop, um, of her working in a fish shop and being killed. What role, you know, we hear 
Well, I don't think we hear enough about victims, but when we do, sometimes it's politicized and it, it's about wedging, dividing. What do you think a healthy way in a society like ours, can we listen to the voices of victims and what do victims have to say to us that can help us move forward in this country? Well, I suppose, first of all, there, there's no one particular type of victim. I mean, victims are like every other person in society. They're, they're very different. And there are those who I think, to be honest with you, the, the conflict was too severe. It damaged them too deeply that they probably wouldn't be comfortable even in a room like this where it's a mixed audience, not quite sure who's, 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 who's in the audience. Um, there are others who, who just want to move on. I mean, I, I think the greatest memorial to, to victims that you can probably give is to, is to develop a society which is not like the society that we left behind. It's, it's a very different society. It's a society where it's okay to be uh, Catholic or Protestant or Nationalist or Unionist or Republican or Loyalist because at the end of the day, these are all just opinions. And what really ma matters, I think, is, is, is the shared humanity. So if, if, if you're in a, a space and you're getting to listen to victims, even if it's not the type of victim you like to listen to, I mean, I'm the nice cuddly kind of victim that says all the nice things about peace and stuff like that. But there are other victims out there that would come out and, and, and they really are so damaged by the conflict that they just couldn't bring themselves to, you know. And, and those, those, those victims, I think, need, need help and need support as well. Um, and I'm, I'm, at the minute, just discovered Facebook, believe it or not, in the last uh, probably uh, three or four months. And I've been having fights with pretty much everybody and anybody. <laughs> Um, I do recommend that you become Alan's friend you know, on Facebook because so, um, you can misspend a good few days of the week. And I, and, I, and I realize how many people out there that, 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 that just don't share my vision of the world. I mean, it's, you know, and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I don't know how, how, you, how you change people's mindsets in that. And I mean, I guess we're on the eve of an election here. And I've been out canvassing for the last, uh, I mean, I'm not going to tell you which party I'm a member of, but I'm a member of a party. Um, but you know what? I just, I just want this place to work. I just want everybody to be, and that sounds like really naff, you know, when you say things like that, because, I mean, what, what, what's, what's so wrong with just being kind to people and just loving people and just listening to people and just walking with people <laughs> who are really hurting? One of the, 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 the most beautiful things that happened to me in my journey uh, happened about two years after Sharon died, and I had taken the decision to move into a mixed community. I didn't want to live in a loyalist housing state any longer. That's where I lived when Sharon was killed. And I knew I just didn't want to live like that any longer. I wanted my daughter to know little Catholic friends as well as little Protestant friends. And so I moved about a, about a mile away into a mixed area. And sure enough, Zoe got to meet little Catholic friends from across the street. And they became best friends. They were inseparable. And I became really good friends as a result of that with their parents, uh, Mandy and Michael. And I can remember one eleventh night, and I have to say to you, it's probably the only the only time in the year when I engage in a wee bit of sectarianism myself. I still go in the bonfires. Um, I still go to the twelfth of July because at the end of the day, I'm still a unionist. I'm still from a loyalist community. I haven't haven't given up on any of that. Um, and so I still do that. I still go to the to the bonfires. And I was getting ready uh, at about sort of half six night, just getting my, my six pack of beers in and getting everything ready to go, when these wee girls across the street, little Catholic girls, their, their father called over. They asked me to come to a barbecue at their house that night. And I said, right, um, I didn't know what to tell him because he was a Catholic. I didn't want to say, look, I'm going into bonfires tonight. But, uh, but he knew, he, he knew anyway. He says, look, you're probably busy tonight and it's bonfire night and stuff like this. But they don't like them till like 11 o'clock, which is brilliant because he'd done his homework. 
And I says, that's right, you don't like them until about 11, sometimes it's midnight actually. And he says, well, why don't you come over first of all, have a bar, have a drink, have a beer, have a, you know, have a burger, whatever, and then you can go in the fires. And I says, right, okay, well, that, that. and so he was pulling my trousers, saying, Daddy, can I please go over? Because he wanted to play with Hannah and Emma. The last thing she wanted to do was to go around the bonfires with me. So I says, right, okay, so Dover. And I got to their house, and I remember knocking the door, nobody there, and then walked around the back, and I could see the barbecue going, and I went in, and uh, when again the, the barbecue was there, it was all friends there, most of them Catholic, a couple of Protestants, most of them Catholic. But the thing that drew my attention was that in the middle of the garden, uh, Michael had built a small bonfire for me. <laughs> no effigies of the Pope, no Irish tricolours, nothing, just a fire. And as we sat around that fire that night, and we told stories, and we told jokes, and we had a beer, and we had a burger, and we just enjoyed being together. I just knew, and, and we listened, by the way, and this was important, we listened to the sound of our kids laughing and playing in the garden. And I tell you, there's nothing more beautiful than the sound of kids laughing. Uh, really not. It's the most beautiful sound in the world, I think, when kids are laughing. And, and I can remember that night thinking, you know what, that's the kind of Northern Ireland that I want to live in. And that's the kind of Northern Ireland that I will always uh, fight for the kind of Northern Ireland I will always stand up for, because I think for far too long we have used culture and we have used tradition as a weapon to beat each other over the head with. And there's absolutely nothing wrong uh, with Catholics. I had three Catholics um, this past summer um, at the bonfire in Woodville. And I long for the day uh, when Protestants and Loyalists can go into the Falls Road and go to Culturland and have a, have, have, a, have a meal and can engage with the Irish language and, and all. You know, that's, that's the kind of Northern Ireland that, uh, that I want to live in. I don't want to live in this Northern Ireland that most of us in this room, um, if you're certainly my age or older, uh, have been part of. And, um, but the sad thing about it is that I, 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 just, I, don't, I, just, I, mean, I just don't see it changed anytime soon. I mean, we still, I mean this, this election, this, this election currently is probably the most toxic election that I have, that I have witnessed in recent times. I mean, I've been told to, be, I've been told to fuck off in Dundonald when I was out canvassing. Um, and you know, but but I, I never want to lose sight of that vision of that Northern Ireland of what it means to be good neighbours because my friend that night uh, from across the street with his little Catholic uh, daughters that befriended my daughter was a good neighbour and that's the kind of society that I want to live in. Thanks, Alan. That's a round of applause. Um, maybe just as we draw it to an end, uh, I wonder when we, I haven't talk, heard you talk too much about your faith, but I remember interviewing Steve Stockman from Fitzroy Presbyterian, uh, actually for our documentary. Um, one of the things that wasn't included was him telling his story of how in his early years, he kind of listened to the Beatles and all you need is love. And it was kind of this vision of the world all walking in peace. Then he became a a believer, uh, and his Christian faith began to give him very strong definitions of who was in and who was out. And he said it actually, in many ways, his conversion kind of led him away from a vision of, of a Jesus that welcomes all, everyone. And I think in some ways I hear something similar in your own story, you know, that when you were young, maybe you didn't get involved in paramilitaries, uh, which was a good thing, and so you had some kind of sense of there are things you should and shouldn't do, but there was a kind of an us and them thing that you began to inherit, and you've begun to be more freed of that. So on the night for us, on the night before an election, and 
in the next weeks as we live with whatever happens tomorrow, um, how do we live in a way that isn't about us and them? And, and where would you see faith in that and God? Well, I, I firmly believe in one God, one faith, one baptism. Um, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm an ecumenist. Um, I go to a Presbyterian church, but I am equally comfortable in a Catholic church. Um, I know there are people in both traditions that wouldn't be comfortable with that. Uh, but I think that for me, uh, the most important thing about faith is living it out. And living it out for me is about how you respond to your neighbor. Um, it's about kindness, it's about love, um, it's about generosity, um, it's about listening, um, <coughs> it's about going the extra mile. Uh, and you know, let, let me give you another just very small story. When my daughter was uh, of, of a Christian school teacher, and just an example of someone who goes the extra mile, and you know, it's not rocket science sometimes, it's just about being kind. My daughter, uh, when she started primary school, she was five years old. And uh, I could never manage her hair, you know? Um, little, I mean, I was on the moon with her, just me and her. And I, I don't know how many times I, I, I just always just brush it back and put a bubble on it and send her out to school. Um, but her wee friends always had pigtails or plots, and plots are freaking, they're really, really hard to do, right, for blokes. Um, and especially, my daughter had very, very fine hair, so you, know, you kind of got it, and then, and, and you just, I just, and I just thought, you know what, just, Roll it back, you know, um, and I didn't realize that anybody actually noticed this. Um, I mean, Zoe never mentioned it, and I just thought, you know. And then one day, um, her school teacher, Miss Karen, came to me, P two teacher, and said to me, Alan, can I have a word with you after school about Zoe? And I'm thinking, right, because you, you only want a teacher wants to talk to you after school about your daughter or your son. It's really, it's, it's never, it's never a good, good. It's always something bad. So I thought, Frig, what, what could Zoe have done it like? five or six years old, whatever she was. And so I went to say it after school in trepidation, what, what, what am I going to hear? And, she, and the first question she said to me was, says, look, tell me, do you struggle with Zoe's hair in the mornings? And I says, uh, and she took me back, completely took me back. And I says, uh, yeah, a wee bit. She says, and then she explained, she says, look, we girls like to do what other wee girls do. They like to have their hair in pigtails or plaits or whatever, or braids or, you know. Um, so tell you what, um, if you're struggling, would send Zoe to school uh, 10 minutes earlier in the morning uh, with a hairbrush and a bobble um, and I will sort her hair out for her. And I thought to myself, and she did. And, you know, and that, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's not a brilliant example, but it is an example nonetheless of just, of just human kindness that just kind of... And we, and, and we can need to do that, I think, in our society. We need to do that with, with, with everybody. I mean, we, we need to, to really work hard for a kinder, more caring society. And I think that's essentially Christian, you know? I mean, one of the big disappointments I've, I've, I've witnessed in recent times, uh, without getting into the ins and outs of the whole abortion issue, um, it was actually the way that debate was actually aired on radio. Uh, because I heard a lot of, just a lot of unkind words spoken on both camps, I have to say to you. Um, and I'm just sitting there thinking, as I listen to it, thinking, you know, was it WWJD? What would Jesus do? Um, and I, I imagine that he would probably deal with it very differently. You know, um. well, um, I'm just aware we um, time's going away a wee bit, so we could probably sit here for a good while and chat. But um, I just want to say, Alan, thanks for modeling in your life um, a way to live past the pain of the past in a way that builds a better future for us all. And I think you're, and even the words that you've used tonight are a good model for us to reflect on as we look at tomorrow and echo chambers and dividing walls and polarization. Um, how we can choose a way that brings peace and brings healing 
Um, so thanks for doing that. Can we give Alan a big round of applause?
Um, we've had visions tonight, haven't we, of what life could be like. We've had visions, if you like, of the kingdom of God. Different, uh, different ones of us would recognize that in different ways, but it's a bit like posh wine. You kind of know it when you taste it. Do you know what I mean? Um, and, and I think all of us would maybe have different definitions of, of what things should be like, but we kind of know it when we taste it. And I've sensed a bit of that tonight. I mean, I was very moved by Old Lang Syne at the end, and I was very aware that we had essentially an Irish band with, you know, coming from Ross Trevor, which is traditionally a fairly Republican area, singing in Ulster Scots, uh, talking about taking a cup of kindness for old times, you know, for old Lang Syne. I think that's what it is. Let's take a cup of kindness and let's bathe the past year in kindness. And it's very poignant on the eve of an election, having heard um, about the murder of Alan's wife, talking about picking up a cup of kindness and singing in each other's language and embracing each other's culture. And um, it's deeply moving, actually. Um, quoting a Palestinian poet, talking about someone shouting across borders. Rarely do we get these sorts of conversations and rarely do we get the sort of gifts that we've received tonight. Yeah, I think there's a lot of work and craft that goes into the poetry, that goes into the music, and that goes into the life that can then testify to moving on and forgiveness and letting go. None of us would want to do that work. None of us would want to be in a position where we had to do that work. And I think we're all very grateful uh, to the people involved in reconciliation and, and creation and, and artistry and the hard heart work of, uh, of processing and forgiving and releasing. And it's just fantastic to get these stories and I feel very privileged to actually have um, heard. I was at Queen's when the Shankill bomb went off. I remember hearing the bang. Little did I know what that meant, you know. And tonight it's taken on a different meaning, actually. Um, so thank you. I mean, we're grasping, aren't we, on borderlands. Nobody owns the territory. We're grasping towards a vision of the kingdom of God. And we're praying our intercession is really that tomorrow good decisions will be made. But then forget tomorrow. How about the day after that and the day after that? And how about not in Westminster, because we all feel so remote and powerless, don't we? Uh, Stormont doesn't even sit at the moment. Do you know what I mean? But we all have agency in different kingdoms, in different spheres, don't we? And I, I suppose we should vote tomorrow, but then we should vote the day after and the day after, and we should make sure we're always working towards the realisation of the kingdom of God. And I think that's our the community of goodwill that is forming here, is people who have a common vision, and we recognise it when we see it. You know, and we would all sort of hesitate to assert our way over every other way. Hence the the, the honouring each other's traditions and perspectives, which is beautiful, actually. Because um, we are talking about a tiny baby born in a manger, aren't we? It's not the most assertive of characters until they develop a pair of lungs, you know. But uh, so thank you. I feel quite moved and I feel quite touched to have... I feel we've received... A tremendous gifts tonight from everybody and even your presence with us. I've met some people I've never met before tonight and um, 
at least a couple of people responded to your Irish Times article, Sorka. So, you know, <laughs> seems, seems to be working, seems to be worth it at the end of the day. And, you know. So I'd just like to say thank you. And um, I would also, in closing, I'd like to invite you back tomorrow night. Not here, but we've started working for the church across the road, the Methodists. And uh, our boss is sitting in our midst, Maureen. She's, uh, she's the minister of uh, the circuit here. And, um, but we, uh, we've started a weekly community meal. Uh, and it starts at six and it goes on till seven. It was Irish stew last week. It was lovely. And you'll meet some wonderful people um, from all sorts of walks. And we want to do it on a weekly basis. We want it to be a weekly thing. So much like this is going to hopefully be a monthly thing. We're trying to create communities of goodwill, of people who can walk together and eat together and celebrate together and sing together and drink together. And, and in, in there somewhere, I think we're doing, doing, we're living in the right way and we're bringing up our kids in that sort of society that uh, we're creating it. It doesn't come for free, right? We're doing the work of creating that sort of society. So thank you for coming tonight. Please come next month. Um, you know, it'll be out on social media. Please, please get details, get connected in before you leave. And God bless us all. Thank you very much. So just to say something about Borderlands, it's a monthly event that we've started to do, myself and Jen and some friends and colleagues. And... Uh, it's trying to create a safe place for people um, who want to explore what faith can look like uh, and what reconciliation can look like and what um, beauty can look like in a world that is increasingly hostile uh, in a spiritual environment where people are more and more inclined to to feel like they don't want to walk through the doors of a church. We're in no ways anti-church, but we're just re realizing that there are more and more people who just won't walk through the doors of a church anymore. And in uh, the gatherings that we've had so far, it almost everyone, in fact everyone, we've had people come up to us, um, often deeply moved by what they've seen and said, we don't feel like we can go to church anymore, but we came tonight and we're so glad and we feel safe here. Can you keep doing what you're doing? And so uh, if you're near Belfast, come uh, find out that we have a Facebook page. Uh, we'll probably get websites and stuff in the future, but for now, um, yeah, find out where we're going to be. Um, we'll be in a pub somewhere. <laughs> At the moment, we're looking more down the Ormo Road uh, area. Um, this year, this week, we were in the Arago last month in the Northern Lights. Come in and visit us and join us. Um, look for us on Facebook, Borderlands Events, and, uh, and we'd love to see you there. The intersection of faith, culture, uh, beauty, reconciliation, conflict. Uh, what does that look like? And... Um, yeah, so we have music, talks, reflections, stories, everything that you're going to hear in this episode here. Um, usually we have a bit more music, but we haven't included all those songs in this episode. Okay, thanks. Thanks.